We're coming to the end of, of Act 1 of the three acts in the greatest story, if you're tracking with the series. We have a, a chart up here again, I think, this week. I'm just going to briefly look at it. Uh, I'm not going to cover all this, but if you don't have one of these, you can get one from the Welcome Center kiosk, how they built the nation down in Egypt and gave them the culture. Next slide. And then the, the land and Joshua judges. All these, these books of the Bible are taking place during this. The peak of the nation was under David and Solomon. Then the kingdom was divided. It was never the same again. Next. They went off into captivity. And uh, then they, they you, you see they came back. And last week we talked about that. That's, the, that's this little block right, if I could point right here. I don't have a pointer. This little block here is the nation. Not really the nation, the, the people going back and being in the country. And that was uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah that time. They are still under Babylon, Persia. And we're going to get today to the Greeks and the Romans and to Christ. Because that's the end of this Act 1. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I just, want, I just wanted you to note here that um, Act 1 flows all the way across under the Greeks and then under the Romans. I, I think our Bibles are divided between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I kind of understand, but we need to understand that the storyline of God, the storyline of God doesn't have a break there, really. I, I think there's a, a real flow in this building toward the provision of Jesus, our Redeemer. So the people are there. They are under, you know, I was going to look this up and I forgot to, but I don't think the nation of Israel ever was restored again until 1948. I don't think anywhere in those 2,000 years, anywhere through there, the nation of Israel was restored back to the land as a, as a, as a nation in the land until 1948 when they were established again which is interesting. They've been scattered since then. And I'll talk some more about that in Act 2, about what that means and how that's happening. I will say this. We come to the end of Malachi in 400 and something, and there's no, there's 400, what, what we call the 400 silent years before Jesus comes. But there was still a remnant of people who knew God and followed God. And so when you get to the first part, of, of Luke, you read story there. Remember the Christmas story we all have, always talking sometimes about Anna and Simeon who, who were looking for God, who were a remnant, who were waiting for the Messiah. God always has a remnant of people, even in the darkest of times when we go through history, God has had a remnant of people who have always sought Him. So a, a brief... A brief summary is found in, in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1, 17 says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So we have these 14s, um, 14 generations from Abraham to David, and, and you know, we're reading about those kings and all. There's a lot of time going on from that because there's 14 generations from David to the captivity. It was a, God was long-suffering for a long time before he sent captivity. Then there were 14 generations from captivity to Jesus. Um, we're reaching the peak of Act 1. 
we're coming to Jesus today. And the, this Messiah that's been spoken of all through the Old Testament and, and, and veiled language now comes very specific. I mean, this is a promise that was in the heart of God and a plan that was in the heart of the God from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity, speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. That is the defeat of Satan. Okay? And you will strike his heel. That was the death of Jesus on the cross. There's all, all kinds of prophecies through the Old Testament. Born of a virgin, reigning on David's throne, the suffering Savior. Until we get to Galatians 4, 4, and 5, which describes what happens. But when the set time had fully come, in other words, God's perfect timing, okay? All of this has been moving this way toward a Messiah. When the set time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. That was the purpose of Jesus' coming. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. So today, we're going to cover Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in one service. It's pro it probably ought to be against the law, shouldn't it? You know, that's almost a crime to say I'm going to do that. So we're flying high. Remember, the Bible does two things. The Bible records two things for us. The Bible records what God does and what God says. And this is what we see here. And so the Gospels really are a blend of those two because there's a 33-year historical narrative of the life of Jesus, primarily the last three years of the life of Jesus. And in there we have the words of God because we have the teaching of Jesus, God in the flesh. So Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. Some of the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May God bless this His own holy word. I want to address the Gospels today by asking three questions, excuse me, four questions. Uh, number one, who is, who is Jesus? Well, we read about it later on in the New Testament in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, before Jesus came, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, could be and perhaps should be translated in his son, because it's very personal that he, he was very God, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So this is, there's this, the timeline of all eternity that Jesus has been there. The son is the radiance of God's glory and exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He is the sustainer of this universe. After he had provided purification for sins, once for all sacrifice on the cross, he sat, ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and he sat down because he was done. It was finished. He had done what was necessary. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word, the full expression of God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus says, I am. And, and this is always the expression of God. Remember when Moses was at the burning bush and he says, I've got to go back and tell the people, I want to go back. Who, who sent, who's sending me back? And, and he says, and God says, I am the great I am. Jesus said, I am the way. Not just to show the way, he is the way. Not just to teach us the truth, he is truth. Not just to teach us about life and how to live, though he does that, but he is life himself. So Jesus is all this. Not in some abstract way, but in a very personal way. So when you read uh, poems written by godly people and you read in scripture out of people's experience with God and you hear people sing about God we hear things like he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own in the words of the old song because there's this personal thing that Jesus is the great I am for us he is our way he is our truth he is our life All truth, all life is personified in Jesus. And I just want to say this very candidly. That until these truths that I'm talking about become something that you own in your own life. This Jesus way, Jesus truth, Jesus life. Until you own that in your life and it becomes personal for you then all these things that I talk about and all that we sing about here is, it's just words on a page. It's just, it's dead. It's dead until it becomes real inside of you and it becomes personal to you. It is not just objective truth like historical, like reading a history book. It's got to become real to you. And the Bible says those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. And they've seen the way that a person ought to live. Who is this Jesus? The second question is, what is this message? Uh, again, we, we, we see here that what Jesus does and what he says are always consistent. We could break the Gospels into two parts. The first part is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, Matthew, Mark, and, Luke. And, and the first three are called the synoptics. Synoptics um, literally means same View. You can see that, sin and optic, okay? The second part that we break it into is the, is the Gospel of John, which is an entirely different book. It's written different. They're, they're consistent in their presentations of Jesus, but very different in their emphases. In the synoptics, I think there is more of an emphasis about your behavior. There is more of an emphasis on what you do, and I think this is modeled for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Beautiful words, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It says, you, which basically is saying, you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He's talking about giving, he's talking about praying. He's talking about fasting, and he's saying, you need to do this. Don't make a show of it. Do it in private. Keep it a secret. You need to do something. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. 
Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I hesitated to use this verse because most people misinterpret it. It doesn't say that we don't make any kind of judgments. It just says we don't make harsh, critical judgments and realize we'll be judged by the same standard if we do. But we all have to make judgments. But it's something that we have to do. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is more of this kind of behavioral kind of emphasis. Jesus is saying, be careful what you do. And it sounds a lot like what we saw in Exodus 20. You remember that? The Ten Commandments. What you do what we described as the law. You must have only no other gods before me. You must honor your father and mother. You must keep the Sabbath. You must not commit adultery. You must not lie or steal. You must do this. Then we get to John's gospel and you get this contrast of believing. John 3.16 and John 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in the Father. Believe, you believe in the Father, believe also in me. So we see an emphasis on belief, which is the human response to God. And it's more of the idea of God is telling us what we will do in response to our faith. It's more of God saying, I will do this. We read about this in John 14. Let me see if I can. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified and the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And so when we get to John, we see more of an emphasis of God saying, I will, I will, I will. Remember that? That was, goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Remember what we call that? We call that grace. So if the Sermon on the Mount is, 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 looks look more like the law, we're seeing when we get into John's gospel, this more of an emphasis on grace and God saying, I will do this, I will do this in response to your faith. Abra it says in, in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, we're not ever saved by our works and by law. And so when you hear you talking about the Sermon on the Mount and doing these things, understand we're not saved by doing those things. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. We're saved by grace. But there is a blend of this in the Old Testament. There's a blend of this in the New Testament. John 1 verse 14 tells us, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's talking about Jesus. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Full of what? Full of grace and truth. And so there is always the, the God part, the grace part, where God says, I will. And there is also the truth where God says, you must trust, <laughs> trust and obey. We used to sing that, you know, trust and obey. It, it, it flows, there is, there is a, I think true faith, true experience of God's grace always overflows in this obedience. So, what is, what is this message? Who is Jesus? Second, what is this message? Three, do we see God moving? Is there any progress? 
I don't want to belabor this, but I think there is. There's been progress moving toward the Messiah over hundreds of years. And when we get to the Gospels, and I don't want to play this too much, but I think in the Gospels you find in seed form what we have developed more fully in the rest of the New Testament when we get into the epistles in the New Testament. And this is what God does. God plants seeds. And, and God always, it's, it's interesting, God tells us what he's going to do before he does it, which is really kind of cool, you know? I mean, he tells us what he's going to do, and then he does it. And it doesn't matter what people think or people say or the devil says or what the devil wants to do, God's plans will never be thwarted. And so we see seeds of what get developed later on. Um, Luke. Luke 21, if, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 21 for just a minute. I want to just give you an example of this. And I think they're all through the New Testament. In fact, um, one fellow named Bernard wrote a book called The Progress of Doctrine. And, and, and I can't vouch for this, but Bernard says that the seed of every New Testament doctrine that you see later on in the New Testament was planted in seed form in the teachings of Jesus. Now, I hadn't searched that, and I don't know if that's true or not. But I know I can show you, I show you several examples, but I'm going to show you one because that's all I have time for. Luke 21, starting in verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. Now, now we've seen all this. The, the, all the end times things that are, are coming to pass, and I think we see even now the kind of things going on in the world today. There is the persecution of Christians that we see today, and we see later in the New Testament. And I'm not going to take you to chapter and verse on that. You will stand before kings. I'll just reference Paul, who stood before the authorities and spoke for God. And then the fulfillment of verse 13, which it says this will happen this will happen, will result in your being witnesses to them. Paul writes in Philippians 1.12. And yeah, and I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So we see in seed form, in the teachings of Jesus, what we see happen and later in the story. So there's always a progress to what God is doing. God is always moving forward. The fourth, the last question. What did he demand of his disciples? We've answered, who is Jesus? What is his message? Is there progress? And the fourth thing is, what did he demand of his disciples? And, and I want to say, and I'm going back to the, to the Matthew 11 passage that I, that I read earlier. Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. That passage. The message of Jesus is... is is uh, as I as I think about the message we've seen earlier, there, there it's consistent. What we what we see in the Gospels, what we see is consistent with what we saw in the Old Testament. Remember, I summarized the message of the prophets: repent and believe, repent and believe, time and again, repent and believe. 
was the message of the prophets. Now, we're going to see this, we're going to see this in the ministry of Jesus as well. Um, Mark 1.15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. This is the message of Jesus. Uh, Mark 8.34 and 35, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then from Matthew 11.28 through 30. What does he say? What does he say to people? What does he say to us? And I think we do something that, that's a lot softer with this passage, and I think sometimes we miss the, the meat of this passage. He says to all of us, come to me. And I would say to you, that's the imitation of God today. And you think, well, I've done, I've done so many bad things. I'm such an evil person. I've messed up so many times again and again Surely God doesn't want me. No, no. The message is, come to me. That's the whole reason that Jesus went to the cross, was for this message to say, come to me. All you who are weary and, and burdened. The word in the Greek there, the burden, has the idea of the, the military backpack that a, a soldier would wear. It's a heavy burden. If some of you have been in the Army or Marines or whatever, I, you know, I read stories about these guys carrying 80 pounds on their back and trekking. It's a heavy burden. It's a lot of weight. And I think this is a picture of, of what, what is it that weighs you down? What is it that weighs you down? And I think ultimately the, the thing that weighs us down is the weight of our sin, the weight of our guilt, the weight of blame. And what does he say? What does he say to us that if we come to him? He says, I will give you rest. And now how does he give us rest? He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take it. In other words, the, the word is be deliberately a choice to take upon yourself this yoke. We have a picture of, of a yoke, I think. Here's a guy with a couple, I guess those are oxen, and he's plowing, and that's a yoke on their neck. Um, they're in the yoke. They're, they're, they're in a place where, they're, where they're, they're, they're under the authority of another. They're at a place of submission. They're at a place of surrender. They're at a place of, of, of yielding to the one who controls them. So, so hear me today. I think Jesus is calling and he is inviting us with all of our sins and all of our gift to come to him and find rest. But he says the only way that we will find rest is in this yoked relationship with him. And what he says, what he says to us, if you will come to me, if you will come to me and you will submit to me and you will yoke with me, I will be your yoke partner. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you. I mean, I'm stretching it to see the idea of being yoked up with Jesus. But there's a very real sense in which he does come alongside of us and he helps us 
Not that he's in a submission place. Don't play that too far. But the idea that he is with us is, is truth. So that is the good news of the message of the Gospels. The message of Jesus. Come to me. Come to me. All you who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He will only give you rest, though, as you enter into that yoked, submissive relationship with him. To choose him as your Lord, to choose him as your king. So let me, let me close by making a couple applications today that, that maybe you can respond to. The, the first one is you're, you're, very, you're tired. You're weary of well-doing. And I just want to give you a word of encouragement today that if you look, if you will look to him, if you will look to Christ, you will find strength. And he will give you purpose and he will remind you of why you're doing what you're doing, why you're on that path, why you're making those good choices. And he will give grace and strength to you for the journey. This, the second application may be today is that you need to return. Maybe there's been a time when you yielded your life to Christ. You truly meant it and you yielded your life to Christ and you started on the path with God, but something has happened and you've you've gotten off the path and you're like a rudderless unanchored ship out on the ocean you're kind of lost and and you need to return back to Christ you need to return to that place of obedience and walking with him and being in yoke And that relationship with him. So I'm going to have a prayer up on the screen this morning. And you can have your eyes wide open. And if this is where you are. I just challenge you to pray this from your heart. The prayer goes like this. Lord I know that I chose to surrender you. And you can pray this in your heart with your eyes open. You can do that. But I have not been a good disciple. I have not living, been living in connection with you. My Lord and King. And today I want to return to your path. I repent of going my own way. And I think if you mean that, I think God will meet you because he says, come to me. Come to me. And maybe the last application is some of you today would say, I've never really surrendered my life to God. Maybe I've been around church. Maybe I've gone to church. Maybe I've known Christians. Maybe granddaddy was a preacher. I don't know. But as far as it becoming personal to you, Pastor, when you were talking about it just being words on a page, that's the way it is for me. Maybe that's where you are today. And, and maybe today is the day that you need to find your rest in God and you need to get your guilt and your sin and your shame taken care of. Because God wants us. God wants us to experience his forgiveness. He wants to give us a new life within. He wants to adopt us as sons and daughters and give us a new identity. So for you today, there's a second prayer, and this on the screen as well, and you can pray it with me, with your eyes wide open. God hears us when we pray with our eyes open, if we mean it. Dear Lord, I know I have sinned against you, and I have been running my own life. I believe that you are God and worthy to be my King and Lord. Today, as best I know how, 
I turn from my sin and rebellion and choose to surrender my life to you. And from this day forward, I will follow you as best I can as you lead me. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to say that the best place in the world to be is in relationship to Jesus. Because everything else in this world changes. He is the same yesterday, for today, and forever. And He will never forsake us. And His good word is that He longs. He longs to give you rest for your soul. And the only place you find rest in your soul is with Him. Only place. You try everything else. Nothing will satisfy except being right with the God who made you and the God who loves you. If you made a commitment today, I'd, I'd like to know about it. If you just write it on a slip of paper and, and give it to me or text me or email me um, and just say I made a new, maybe my first commitment or maybe I recommitted my life, I'd like to know that. I'd like to pray for you. So if you did, please let me know. I think that's all I have for today. We have one more message Next week, I'm going to be talking about how everything, everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. That's the last message from Acts 2. Then we're going to Act 2, and then we're going to take uh, a little while off for Thanksgiving and some Christmas. And then at the 1st of January, we'll start up in Act 2 um, with, uh, when Jesus ascends in heaven and God begins to work in the, what we call the church age. Some people call it that. The age we're living in now, and uh, that's what we'll launch into in January. Let's stand together for our closing prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your message. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that none of us are too far from you. You long to know us, to carry us, to be with us, to sustain us, to encourage us. And we stand in that today in Jesus' name. Amen.